Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa podcast. friends and welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. My name is Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles and I'm your host. Uh, There's a couple of things I want to discuss before we get started on tonight's episode. First is that if you listen to our last episode with Summer Grace Mitchell, I want to give a huge shout out to her for our awesome intro. She did a great job. She's a pleasure to work with and just a friendly reminder to check out her stuff. The next thing I want to say is that after A few people telling me I should. I have started a Patreon for the podcast. I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to the first three people who started donating as soon as I I mentioned that it was coming, especially our guest tonight, um, and say thanks for all the continued support I've seen. Um, If you want to be a patron, we've got some awesome deals on some merch items. It's going to be a nice little community. Um, I'm going to be sending out stickers to different levels. And then also you just help to keep the podcast up and running, including all of our technical costs, helping cover the website, which is coming soon. I promise. I'm just very busy and um, helping, you know, just support me and everything we're doing. So I want to say thank you so much for that. In addition, when you join the Patreon, we are going to be planning a Patreon like live hangout, maybe uh, an exclusive interview. Things are still in the works, but Uh, Just, you know, keep your eyes peeled and the Patreon will be linked in the bio of this podcast. That's kind of all of the stuff for me. Once again, thank you for your incredible support. I've had such a great time making these first, I think this is our 14th episode. So like, that's insane. So thank you so much. Um, And let's get started. So tonight's guest is a dear friend of mine. She is someone I've been, you know, chatting with for a few months now. She is a very reputable and Um, I admire her a lot as a breeder for Chihua geckos, um, and she's just like, you know, all around a badass lady. So I'd like to introduce you to Erica Paris of Arboreals Anonymous. Hey, Erica. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Yeah, I, you know, it's been far too long since we finally got this scheduled. So thanks for making your schedule work for me. <laughs> of course. So what are you drinking tonight during this episode? Uh, whiskey. Oh, that's good. That's, do you drink it it's, like on the rocks? Yeah. Oh, holy shit. I'm drinking rum chata. <laughs> <laughs> I love rum chata. <laughs> but I sound so lame. <laughs> no, it's not. I, uh, I get a little nervous, so I got it. Oh yeah. Don't it's very calm. The only person here is going to judge you as my cat. So. Oh, my cat it. is also doing the stare down. Perfect. <laughs> I can't wait to see him. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but for anyone listening, um, sorry for the last couple of weeks being a little bit crazy and, and my upload schedule being weird. One of the reasons I'm drink, drinking rum chata tonight is because I move in 36 hours from when this is being recorded and I have not packed. So we're drinking rum chata and coffee to keep me up all night to be able to get packed. Man, that is <laughs> intense. It's like very responsible thing to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We'll make it work. So Erica, back to what this is actually about. So tell me a little bit about yourself. So just let's get the basics out of the way. So who are you? Where do you live? And what do you keep? 
Um, my name is Erica and I live in New Mexico and I keep just a handful of species. I keep Chihua geckos, Lichianus geckos, and green tree pythons, as well as one pair of Europlatus peachmanii. Okay, what's hardly- the common name for that? <laughs> Uh, cork bark leaf tail geckos. Okay. I knew it was a leaf tail, but the cork bark, I didn't know that. Yeah. I never see them. <laughs> That's the one you I've, posted a picture of. And yeah. I did not think there was a gecko in that picture. Yeah. It's their, their tricksy little jerk faces that I regularly am like, are you dead? And I tear the cage apart. And sometimes I don't even find them. And like, I go through everything like five times and I'm like, they've vanished, <laughs> uh, but they're still there. <laughs> They're really small. They're only a few inches long and they're just so good at disguising themselves and like wedging themselves into the crevices. Their tank is packed with cork bark, mm-hmm. which of course, like it's impossible to find them. Yeah. So it, that's a species that I haven't heard of. I am familiar with leaf tail geckos as a whole, but what, what was it about this specific? Oh my gosh. Am I drunk? What was <laughs> it about this specific species that drew you to them? I have loved them since I was probably 17, I think. I really love species that are very cryptic. Mm-hmm. And they are like pictures of them from the wild. They're, it's like those, the, you know, those books that you go through as a kid and you're like, find the thing. Mm-hmm. Those puzzle books. Yeah. I love those. And so these geckos are just like that for me. And I've just always really loved them. And mm-hmm. all the species that I keep, honestly, like I've had pretty much the same list of favorite species for like 20 years now. And mm-hmm. like, there are more that I would love to keep, but I know personally, I do better and keep my reptiles better when I stick to a handful of species. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of went with like my favorites. Right. So when you have like a handful of species do you limit yourself to a number too, or do you, can you have like a hundred of that handful? I do have a hundred of that handful. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I oh, don't go think that I would want like a couple hundred of that mm-hmm. handful, but like I manage, I have roughly a hundred animals at any given time and I manage mm-hmm. them very well to my standards. I find that I struggle even with like 30 animals if it's 20 different species. Like that's Mm -hmm. something that I've just noticed about myself is that like, if I can't have a schedule and, and have setups and care routines that are very similar, Mm -hmm. I just don't, I don't keep it together very well. So that's a practice that I've just gotten into over the years to make Mm -hmm. sure that I'm keeping things the way that I want to keep them. So before we get too deep into your current, um, you know, your current collection. I want to talk a little bit more about your journey getting into reptiles and, uh, and that. So for people, for people who don't know you now, you have a large reptile collection. You also live on like basically a farm. So I'm assuming you were an animal lover since you were a kid. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was one of those perpetual log flippers. Nice. Yes. Um, I grew up, my, my early years were in the redwoods in California Mm -hmm. So I was always catching things and bringing them into the house. And thankfully my parents were champions about it and never dissuaded me. They weren't stoked on me bringing everything into the house, (laughs) but they, they didn't, they didn't try to crush that interest 
like mm-hmm. a lot of parents do. They really like, they got me encyclopedias on animals and reptiles and like, just got me the things so that from a really early age, I could go and identify things and like not bring rattlesnakes home. Cause yeah. I did, I did grow up where there were a lot of timber rattlesnakes mm-hmm. and I mean, that strategy worked. I've never brought, I've never brought anything dangerous and I've grabbed a lot of things I probably shouldn't have, but <laughs> I've always had a strong intuition for what is going to hurt me. Mm-hmm. So did you have siblings? I do. I grew up with a younger brother who's three years younger than me. Okay. Um, and now as an adult, I have a sister who's nine and a brother who's six. Okay. Awesome. So when you're growing up with your brother, who's three years younger than you, did he kind of follow in your footsteps of like wanting to be outside and, and picking up random things and stuff? Not at all. So um, was that, how did your parents like react to that? Were they pretty supportive of, I mean, obviously they were supportive of you, um, like having the animals, they, you know, they gave you books and stuff, but was it something that they ever tried to dissuade you from? No, my dad was always, a, uh, an outdoorsman, like a woodsman. Uh, mm-hmm. we went hunting every year and that was just like the lifestyle. We lived in a really rural place. And mm-hmm. like you hunt for food, that's how you live. And my mom was a vet tech. So like even from an animal age, family. <laughs> yeah. We were an animal family. Um mm-hmm. even even like cats and dogs and stuff, sometimes like sometimes they would get things in the clinic that she worked at. And like one time it was this feral kitten and she just brought it home and it was like, they were gonna put it down. So I brought this kitten home. Nobody could even change the food or water in its cage. It like ripped people's faces off. Oh my God. And I took this kitten and I don't let PETA harass me for this. No, they don't I, listen. <laughs> I dragged this kitten around like a rag doll for three days. Mm-hmm. And I was like four years old. Like I was small. Mm-hmm. And that cat loved me. Like I'm sure it was Stockholm syndrome, but that cat <laughs> followed me around for a decade after that. Mm-hmm. Like he was an awesome cat, but in the, in the vet clinic, he was a terror. Mm -hmm. So they were cool with it. They did make a deal with me when I was like six years old. They were like, will you please stop bringing all of these wild animals into the house if we get you a reptile pet? So that's a good proposition. (laughs) It was a great proposition. Um, They took me to Sacramento, which was like the nearest big city. Mm -hmm. And we went to a reptile store and they got me a ball python and the whole setup and stuff. Um, it was probably a wild caught ball python, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I think is super ironic now because they were like, stop bringing all the wild animals in the house. But like, this was totally a wild, yeah, animal a wild caught. <laughs> that we really, we really struggled like mm-hmm. keeping it. Like I had to force feed it. Oh geez. Cause it wouldn't eat. Like it was, it was one of those like fresh off the boat pythons. Mm-hmm. But that was my first reptile pet that wasn't something that I pulled from under a rock or a log and <laughs> shoved in a box under my bed. So how old were you at that point? I think it was six. You're six. Okay. So you really yeah. got started young. Yeah. And has it been since you were six that you've, you've had animals? Yes, I did take a break. Um, there were some major, major life changes while I was trying to finish college and things mm-hmm. just got way too rough. And I was like, I'm not able to maintain this. And so I took a few years off, um, so that I could finish my degree, which was in wildlife science. Oh, awesome. So you're built for this. <laughs> yeah. Like, but to finish that degree, I had, we traveled a lot and did a lot of field work. Like there were mm-hmm. required field work hours to get your degree. And so mm-hmm. I was just gone too much and couldn't maintain a collection well. 
And it was like, I had people that could watch my collection while I was out of town, but it's like, every time I came home, something was dead. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, I, I can't do this. Like, it's emotionally too hard to know yeah. that like, even though the people I had watching them were trying their best, I had a very diverse collection that was all finicky animals that were difficult to maintain. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I did, I did get rid of all of my animals at that point so that I could finish my degree. So between when you got your first ball python at six and then, you know, getting to college and stuff, how did your collection grow at that point? Were your parents kind of on board after that for you getting animals? It wasn't a free for all, but I did always have a couple reptiles. Mm -hmm. My collection through the years was very eclectic, was mostly likely wild caught animals with mm-hmm. information from the nineties that is not current best husband beef yeah. practices. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so things unfortunately did sometimes die. Like even with vet care at the time in the early nineties, like we just lacked so much information, mm-hmm. but like, I kept a lot of weird things. I kept spiny tail iguanas. I kept chameleons. I kept some leaf tails. I kept green tree pythons. I kept a bearded dragon, <laughs> like all sorts of like oddballs that didn't really make any sense and needed very diverse maintenance. Mm-hmm. So as a kid and then like a kid in the nineties, where were you getting your information about these species? Was it all from books? Was there a community around you at all? Books from the library, I had no community. (laughs) Again, books that you could get from a public library in the 90s were mostly written in like the 70s and the 80s. And there was a lot of guesswork. Mm -hmm. And like we did things totally the wrong way. Like I kept most of my animals in like glass fish tanks with screen tops and those red chicken heat lamps. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now I look back on that and I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? But I was just a kid in the 90s who had no clue. Right. So where were you getting these animals? Was it all like the same pet shop? Um, mostly, mostly it was the same pet shop, but we lived in a super rural area. So it was like, you had to go to the city. It was that like the same we- with all of your supplies too? Yeah. Okay. I guess I can't, I just can't imagine that I've always lived in cities, but that's just me being ignorant. I guess that would make sense. Yes. <laughs> I grew up in a town that was so small that to this day you drive to it and the like welcome sign is like population 34. <laughs> That's how rural. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> That's so wow. Did they just change it every time someone had a baby? No. <laughs> Now I live in a city that's substantially larger. We have like 110, 120,000 people. Oh, okay. I thought and you were going to say 110 people. And I was like, yeah, you really moved up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I live in an actual city now, but I definitely am not a big city person just mm-hmm. by nature. Like I need open skies and space and air. Yeah, for sure. So you, you now, I mean, tangential to your reptiles, you have a decent amount of like small livestock. Is that correct? Yes. So did you have goats and chickens and ducks when you were growing up? Or is that something that adult Erica has gotten into? Um, a little bit of both. We did keep chickens when I was a kid. And also 
Um, we rehabbed various things. Like at one point, like we had a fox that lived with us that I'm sure was probably not legal, but <laughs> it was really injured. And my mom was a vet tech. And so we were like, we're going to rehab this. And then we set it loose, but it lived under our house. Mm -hmm. Like it was totally a wild fox that my dad, um, like found and just brought home. He, he found it in somebody's bear trap oh, and he geez. brought it home to my mom. And so she was like, well, we've got this fox now. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, husband. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was always pretty cool with it. Both of my parents were really soft hearted. Mm -hmm. So when they saw something in need, they were like, this is what you do. Like mm -hmm. you take care of things that need help. Going back to, you know, you're in college when you had to make the decision to substantially cut down or just get rid of your animals completely. What was that process like? And what were you currently um, keeping? I don't remember everything that I had mm -hmm. at the time. I had some crested geckos and a green tree python and a uroplatus and I had a bunch of fish tanks. I kept like those big planted aquarium with, like, oh my God, I want one so bad. There's so much work. I don't There's regret. so much work. <laughs> I don't reg regret getting rid of aquariums. <laughs> like I love them and they're beautiful, but I used to breed discus, which are like the most finicky oh my of fish. God. No way. Okay. So I don't know if you listen, but like the Herpeticulture Network does snakes and stogies on Monday nights. Um, but we, we always joke that uh that Ryan Cox and Billy Hunts and I are going to take over one episode and talk about fish tanks and plants because that's what we're into. But like discus, that's like a dream to keep. How did you breed them? They're so difficult. They're so difficult. And what makes it harder is that like I live in the desert and our water yeah. <laughs> is like pH 8 or 8.2. And so uh -huh. I had to go haul reverse osmosis water from the store. Like I had to get those five gallon jugs and like haul like five jugs home every goddamn day. Oh my like, God. They were so high maintenance. And I've just realized that like, I'm not the person that enjoys that. Yeah. They're beautiful, <laughs> like, I love though. looking at them. And mm -hmm. I had this huge, beautiful tank. that was like the centerpiece of my home, but I just don't. I don't want things that require that kind of daily effort. I worked at a fish tank store right before COVID and, um, the store I was in, uh, catered to like the rich people of Cincinnati. Like I went to one of the houses one time to help fix a tank cause they didn't have the right valve or something. And it was like walking into a hotel. It was so insane. And I think if I ever get to that level of rich where I can pay someone else to come care for my fish every week, then I'll get a really big tank. <laughs> but until then, until I can afford that, we're just going to stick with beta fish. If mm -hmm. I ever got that kind of rich, I would want freshwater stingrays. Oh my God. Yeah. I we had one at the them. shop. They were so beautiful. They're hand feeding them. Oh my mm -hmm. goodness. I just love them so much. And they come in so many beautiful colors, but I just, they're so high maintenance and I don't yeah. need that. We had one at the shop. Oh my God. <laughs> I was working the floor at this time. Um, and it was like very obviously male, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And like all of these kids would come up and be like, what's that? And I'm like, a stingray. And they're like, well, what's that? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's part of him. It's a boy. Okay. <laughs> Look at these fish. <laughs> they did not pay me enough to explain the birds and the bees to children. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man i'm just like sitting here jealous of your discus that's timeline wise was this like in the the 2000s when 2010s when you kind of got out of the collection initially yeah i'm not trying to i'm right. not trying to age you or anything i'm just trying to like get a timeline together <laughs> no that sounds about right and it wouldn't age me anyway because i started college at 16 so like oh fuck were you just yeah, like really I, smart um i i was one of those kids that was like always in trouble at school Mm-hmm. for just dumb dumb things that didn't matter yeah. and I was bored and then it was sophomore that's your third year of high school right second junior is your third junior I did two years of high school so it had to be junior yeah. year it was like the first day of school and like this one teacher I swear she had it out for me <laughs> I wasn't even on campus yet I was across the street like walking into school Mm-hmm. And she immediately pulled me into the principal's office for a dress code violation. Oh my God. It wasn't like it was pants, <laughs> <laughs> but she swore they were pajamas. And then it was like, she called in like five teachers and the principal and the assistant principal and then called my parents and made them come pick me up. And I was like, I'm not going back. Like I yeah. just won't. <laughs> was this a public school? Yeah. Oh, fuck that. I I went to Catholic school, so I had a uniform up till I was 18. So I can kind of understand if it was like a Catholic school or a private school where you had a uniform, but no. What you're wearing to school doesn't, I'm, I'm going to get off my soapbox, but that's yeah. dumb. <laughs> I hate dress codes. I hate uniforms. Also, like it was pants. <laughs> I yeah. don't understand. It wasn't like I showed up to school in a thong. It was pants. It was just, they thought that they were pajama pants and they weren't pajama pants. But I just told my parents, I was like, I'm not going back. Like this year hasn't even started and already I hate it Mm -hmm. and I'm just not doing this. Mm -hmm. So they were like, okay, but like you can't just drop out and do nothing. So you got to sign up for college like immediately. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I did. And was it like a community college? Um, I started and I did the first year in community college and then I moved to the state college. Okay, awesome. And from from there, were you always like wildlife biology minded like that's what you knew that's what you wanted to do how did your views on or did they did your views on on captive keeping of animals and like your collection change at all during your college education this is a little interesting because as a teenager I was always like someday I want to grow up and breed reptiles oh really (laughs) and then I was like I talked myself out of it I was like that's not a viable life path Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, the next best thing is to like go through college and get a degree in wildlife. And like through that, I'll find something that I really love. Mm-hmm. And so I went to school for that. And it turns out that most of those jobs are kind of soul sucking. Mm-hmm. All of the jobs that you can get with that degree are either working for like oil companies mm-hmm. or working for the government. <laughs> And like, I did get a job working out at White Sands Missile Range as biologist there. Mm -hmm. And I did love like a lot of parts of the job, but writing Mm -hmm. reports on like the damages that tanks and missiles (laughs) cause on our native wildlife. It's so depressing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did that for a while and I really just, I wasn't happy with it. So I was like, you know, like, I'm going to reconfigure my life and I'm going to change some things up and find something that makes me happy. And it took a while. Like I did 
I did odd jobs and I did a lot of jobs that were totally unrelated. I worked in a pet store for a while. I managed a pet store for a while, a chain mm-hmm. pet store that sucked. <laughs> um, and so I really just found my way back to it over the years and was like, this makes me really happy. And I mm-hmm. just, I don't want to do things that don't make me happy. That's not how I want to spend my life. And when so was just, it that you got back into reptiles? Again, I started small, but probably six or seven years ago. Okay. So you took a pretty significant break. Yeah. I took like a four year break, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I, I started slow and I started doing the same thing that I had before, just getting like odds and ends. And I would do a lot of things. Like I'd go to a show and I'd be like, well, I'm not breeding. So like, I'll just find a male because males of most species are like cheaper and easier to find. Mm-hmm. Like I'll just get like the prettiest male I can find of the species that I like. Right. And so I just kept a lot of like odd males. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually I was like, you know what? Like, I think I could make this work. And at the time I was working and it was just like a hobby until I built it up over the years. And I still, I kind of have a regular job until COVID shut that down. <laughs> and so this last year it's been just reptiles. And, and what is your regular job? So my partner is a glass artist. He is a marble maker. Mm-hmm. And like real marbles? Like you play with? Yeah, glass. Um, not like you play with. Most of okay. Most of what he makes is substantially larger than that. Like not st- like giant and marbles. Yeah. So he works in borosilicate glass. It's like your Pyrex. Oh, okay. It's a hotter flame and it's, a, it's different chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he does that. And at an art gallery years ago, I saw, it's actually not an art gallery. I say that because it was a really beautiful piece and it should have been an art gallery. It was a head shop. At there a was what shop? A head shop, like what pipes and stuff. Like pipes for smoking. Oh, meat. oh my God. I'm just a dumbass. Keep going. <laughs> um, so at this head shop in Mendocino so County. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> that just shows how naive I am. Keep going. You're fine. I immediately thought, why are you doing plumbing work? But now I know <laughs> what you mean by pipes. <laughs> um <Keep> going. <laughs> it was this really nice head shop in Mendocino County. And I went in and they had this pipe and it had a copper electroplated dragonfly on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I love that. I loved it so much for years. I thought about it. Mm-hmm. And then one day I was like, I really like, I really want to do this because electroplating is chemistry. Mm-hmm. I love chemistry. I'm great at chemistry and it's art and it's bugs. And it's like, putting these three things that I really love together in this really creative, malleable space. Yeah. And my partner got me an electroplating kit and I think he got it for like Christmas or my birthday one year. And I started going to town with it and I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to electroplate everything. So what is electroplating? Um, it's a weird process. (laughs) It's kind of hard to describe. It's the original intent of it was to uh, make like circuit boards and microchips mm-hmm. for computers, mm-hmm. but you basically put, you paint things with a conductive paint and you put them in a bath of battery acid and you hook it up to uh, electricity 
mm-hmm. and it plates the thing that you've painted in paint that's conductive in copper. And oh, so wow. it's like, it's encased in copper. So mm-hmm. I do these pieces and like the bugs are still inside of it. Mm-hmm. They're just sealed in copper. Oh, that I need to see a picture of this. You got to send me a picture so that I can post it. There's a ton okay. on my Instagram, but that's, oh God, I, I can obviously send you some. don't pay attention. I'm so sorry. I'm I like, haven't, so we, we, um, did that for a while and we traveled and vetted shows with my copper art and his glass art mm-hmm. and a lot of, um, pieces that were collaborations between us. Like he'd make these really beautiful vortex marbles with like opals inside. And then I would, I would plate it around the outside and in copper. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really posted that stuff very much since COVID started because we had booked solid a year of shows. We had like 30 shows planned to vend over 2020 and then they all got shut down. And so we had like all the stuff made because we anticipated a really busy year. Right. And I haven't. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. haven't been making stuff. Um, we are signed up for a couple of shows in the fall. So I'm hoping that that picks back up again, mm-hmm. but we're taking it slow. To see are you going to be, go. I'm looking at your Instagram now. Are you going to be um, bringing any of these products to Tinley? I usually do bring some. Okay. But not the biggest, most delicate pieces. I will not mm-hmm. fly with them. Okay. So as I'm thinking, I'm, and this is me being really weird. I'm in the middle of Brood X. Do you need cicadas? I would love cicadas. I love cicadas. How do I ship? I'm going to ship you cicadas. I'm writing that down. I'll send you instructions. <laughs> oh, my friends are going to love this. My friends and I have been, my because these are my non-reptile friends. I just surround myself with weird people have been sending cicada pictures to each other and we're all like they're coming (laughs) (laughs) i do the same thing and all my friends i've got friends all over the country Mm -hmm. and reptile and non-reptile and they're all like hey do you want this like they just send me pictures of dead stuff they're like do you want that's actually good to know i'm gonna start sending you dead things i have a whole section of my freezer for dead stuff (laughs) no this is so fascinating okay (laughs) um so wow that's so cool so were you, and this just your uh, experience, were you always pretty artistically minded? Because I noticed that a lot of people, you know, it's either you're very scientific, which it seems like you are, or you're very artistic. Have you always kind of crossed that line between the two? I definitely have. I'm really into geometry and biology and chemistry and math and like fractal patterns. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of just go together and in electroforming, which is why I really loved it so much because it's mm-hmm. like all my favorite things. Yeah. So what does it do? Well, we'll get back to reptiles in a minute. I promise guys. Um, but what does electroforming do to the actual like bug carcass that's inside of it? Um, if I don't seal it properly, it dissolves in the bath of battery acid. How do you seal it? It depends on what it is and like how permeable it is. There's a couple mm-hmm. different recipes I use for like, mm-hmm. Um, one, one recipe that I use is like this industrial plastic chips that I dissolve in acetone and then dip the piece in Mm -hmm. so that it like soaks up the acetone plastic. And then I pull it out and like the plastic, um, the acetone evaporates off. And so the, like the plastic seals it, Mm -hmm. um, some things, if they're not super permeable, 
I can just use like a polyurethane spray, like varnish. Um, mm-hmm. Some things I have to paint super thick. Some things I have to like coat in rubber. Like it depends on on what exactly it is. How yeah, I have to see. I'm it. looking. So I'm looking on your Instagram. Do you ever use? I don't want to say real animals, but like animals as opposed to inverts. Can you do yes. that? How? Um, there's a couple of ways. The only way that I can encase them is if I mummify them first, which I oh, have Oh, is that done. what this is? I can't see what that is. Can you see that? It's like, a oh, little... that's the snake. No, that one actually, um, that one was a baby green tree python from mm-hmm. Justin Smith from Palmetto Coast Exotics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was his first clutch. And that was one of the babies that didn't make it out of the egg. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, I, he shipped it to me and I sawed it out and then I shaped it around a real branch. And then I made a silica, I froze it first. I mm-hmm. froze it in the position that I want. And like, I pinned it on styrofoam blocks to like hold it the way that I wanted and then froze it again. And mm-hmm. then while it was frozen, I made a silicone mold of it. Okay. And then I cast that in resin and electroplated that. That's to mummify things, it pulls all of the moisture out. Mm-hmm. And so they get very gaunt and skeletal. Mm-hmm. And I can't keep those lifelike qualities. So mm-hmm. I do have some pieces that are mummified animals and that the whole animal is still inside and intact. Uh, but those are, those are much more of like niche pieces because they definitely, yeah. they definitely look dead. This is something I like want you to be promoting more. Do you take like commissions? <laughs> I'm when Yzma dies, I'm sending you her body. <laughs> I don't think I could do a whole cat like that. So <laughs> you can <yeah>. try. <laughs> so like there's a formula for like the amperage that you have to run through the battery acid. And it's mm-hmm. like the, the square inch of surface area that you want plated. And mm-hmm. like, I have a hundred square inch limit unless I want to spend like 10 grand on a rectifier to go bigger than that yeah I won't make you do that I mean think she's worth it but we won't make you do it I could do a skull I've done coyote I'm looking skulls. at my very much alive cat thinking how big is your skull I've done coyote um, skulls so I can definitely do a cat skull unless she's enormous interesting no, she's very tiny she's she's felt as my mother would say okay back to like what this podcast is actually about not dead snakes let's talk about live animals (laughs) so when was your move to new mexico so you're from california originally what was it that brought you to new mexico um i was pretty young actually when they moved us out here um Mm -hmm. there were some major things my dad got really ill and was in the hospital for a long time uh they had to declare bankruptcy and mm-hmm. my dad had to close his business. So they were like, we need some life changes. And we can't really afford to live here right now. And they wanted to move. And my mom's father lived in the Chiricahuas. And so she wanted to be closer to him. And mm-hmm. my dad was like, I don't super love the desert. So he's, um, he went to architecture school. Mm -hmm. and is a cabinet maker and so he was like just looking at real estate in the area and he found a house that he loved like he really loved this house we couldn't afford it but he was like find me something near this house like I just want to be able to go like look at this house (laughs) (laughs) and so they chose Las Cruces okay and so you've been there ever since 
it's awesome. really a great place. Like it is a smaller community. Um, but it's a, also a really close knit community. Like people look out for each other here in a way that I haven't seen in many places. And that's something that's like important to it's have really where you're important. living. Is there a reptile community in where you're living? Um, I have a couple close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's not a whole lot of us here. And there's no big shows nearby. We have the Tucson Reptile Show, which is like four, four and a half hours from me. Um, and that's the closest, but it's a very small show. Mm-hmm. It's a good show. Like the quality of, of what people bring there is great. Um, but it's just, it's not to the scale of like NARBC or or the yeah. Herbs Expos. Um, and we have one really amazing reptile shop, Cross City Exotics. I'm super close with them. Uh, it's Mike and Lindsay Daniels. And like, they have a couple people and like Sivachko Exotics is very close. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when Mike and Lindsay have to go out of town, they'll message me and be like, hey, can you keep an eye on my stuff? And like when I yeah. gotta go out of town, like I give them a heads up. I'm like, hey, can you keep an eye on my stuff? And so like we've got each other's backs, but it's not a big community of reptile mm-hmm. people here. Yeah. Well, it also cuts down on drama a little bit. It definitely does. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you get back into the hobby about four or five years ago, but um, at this time, were you with your current partner? Yes. So was he aware of, you know, the what it meant to like reptiles for you? Um, a little bit, but probably in a theoretical way. <laughs> Thankfully, he's an animal lover. Like he would never choose this as himself, but like we have ducks and chickens and goats and mm-hmm. dogs and a cat. And I had fish. I had elaborately planted tanks when we got <laughs> together. So he knew me when I was, we met when I was 16, I think, 16 mm-hmm. or 17. Um, the first time he met me, actually, I was bottle feeding an exotic cat. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you used to have a serval. Yes. So when he met me, like he knew mm-hmm. <laughs> that that wasn't like a regular kind of animal person <laughs> to bottle feed him. Even at like nine weeks old, I had to wear like welding gloves mm-hmm. <laughs> because he would just wrap his arms around my arm and like knead. Oh, but yeah. at nine weeks old, he was bigger than most house cats. And like mm-hmm. that could do some serious damage. And it wasn't mm-hmm. like, it wasn't aggressive at all. It was like the dough, you know, when cats like knead bread. Oh yeah. It was like that. He was just a huge cat that was a kitten and had mm-hmm. no like self-control. So how did you get a serval? Was that like a family thing? Was that just um, yours? A little bit. Wow. So this goes back even further. A few years before that, we uh, we bred, like as a family, we bred uh, Bengal cats and Aussie cats. Which What's are an like, Aussie cat? Is that an Aussie ocelot? cat? It's not. They are totally domestic. The Bengal cats are hybrid cats, mm-hmm. but the Aussie cats are totally domesticated uh, with no wild blood in them. When I dropped out of college, this was some weird timing. I had some friends in Arizona that had these exotic cats and a friend of ours that had a bunch of them along with horses out on a ranch in Arizona 
her sons and nephew got in a, a major car accident and they all had to go down to Texas mm-hmm. and like, they weren't sure if, if her sons were even going to live. And I had just dropped out of, out of high school. So it was like very serendipitous timing. And I'd signed up for the following semester of college, but they couldn't get me in like that semester. Yeah. Um, and she was like, I need somebody that isn't an idiot about animals to go watch these animals. <laughs> and so like my parents drove me out at 16. I couldn't drive. I didn't have a license to the middle of nowhere in Arizona with like super rural to go take care of these exotic cats and horses by yourself, by myself. <laughs> oh my God. That's like the start of a horror movie for a good while while they were in Texas trying yeah. to get their, their kids. I mean, they were adult kids. They were in their twenties, but through this yes. major, major traumatic car accident. So I was out there a while. Um, and what kind of animals was it when you say cats, what were um, you dealing with? Mostly servals, some hybrids, um, a couple bobcats. I think that was everything and, mm-hmm. and horses. Uh, and it was super rural, like super rural, mm-hmm. <laughs> like literally the middle of nowhere. Like if things went wrong, like there wasn't a hospital nearby. <laughs> I did fine. And like everything went fine. And like I was a level headed kid. And so I was on my own out there for a while. And through that, like we got to know there's a a fairly decent community of people in this country that keep exotic cats. Mm-hmm. And so we got to know them through that. And another friend had a litter of these servals and two of them were born severely crippled. Mm-hmm. Servals normally have litters of two or three. This one had a litter of like six and like two oh, of wow. them that their front legs were like totally deformed from like being super cramped in the womb. And like their legs were like this and they couldn't mm-hmm. walk. And she was like, I don't want to put them down, but I don't know what to do. <laughs> Would you take one and see if you can like do physical therapy and maybe corrective surgery and like get him, you know, able to walk. And so I took mm-hmm. him. And I was at the time I was in college and studying for a wildlife degree. So I got him and I did physical therapy and it was like a lot of work. It was a mm-hmm. lot. Of, I got him before his eyes were even open. He was so tiny. Oh, wow. His mom rejected him because he was crippled. Yeah. She rejected mm-hmm. both of the babies that, that were handicapped. Um, and so I did a lot of work with him and, and over like the first year or so of his life, I was able to get him. Uh, he was always a little bit bow-legged, mm-hmm. but, but he, was he walking. yeah, he walked and ran and played and was a doll. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's how I got into it. It was just like serendipitous. Did you have any like conversations with classmates or professors about this? Cause I, in my head, I can imagine that owning a wild cat while also studying like a wildlife management degree can be kind of counterintuitive or have a little bit of a clash. Um, I probably shouldn't have, and this is not responsible keeping, but I was like 17. So mm-hmm. forgive me. I actually took him to a lot of classes work with me and I worked oh, wow. at the <laughs> university in one of the labs so mm-hmm. I took him to work with me for pretty much the first year of his life. 
Mm-hmm. And like, he, he was so like emotionally dependent on me that I actually made him like, you like those wear pouches for babies. Mm-hmm. I made him one of those for me to wear him. Oh my God. Oh my <laughs> <And> God. <laughs> so he went with me like everywhere and was yeah. super social. Everybody loved him. Like, is that the responsible thing to do? Absolutely not. And I found this out later. It was not even legal, but I didn't know because I was an idiot. Mm-hmm. What a way to socialize in that. Like, you really want to get <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> serval. <laughs> the few servals I mean, I've interacted with, it's hard to gain their trust. He was so trusting and so sweet. And everybody his whole life told me, like, he's going to hit this age and he's going to change. And mm-hmm. he'd hit that age and he wouldn't change. And then they're like, okay, wait till he hits this age and he's going to change. And it never happened. Up until he died, he was the sweetest, most lovable, trusted everybody, loved everybody. If you startled him, he would hiss, but mm-hmm. he was never aggressive. He was like, yeah. I'm going to back into this corner and hiss. And like, if you leave me alone, we'll be good. Mm-hmm. But if, if you left him alone, like 30 seconds later, he'd be wanting to lick your face. That's crazy. So I'm going to take a, a brief moment to just do a little PSA that if anyone's listening, um, we have another episode where I actually talked with Alex Ash of Kinkatopia and she runs a uh, Kinkajou sanctuary. It is episode three. Um, Erica, what you're describing is like so abnormal, like insanely lucky to have a wild animal that was so calm and uh just if anyone thinks that they're ready for a wild animal like that just take a listen to alex's episode first (laughs) make sure you understand that this isn't always how it works (laughs) i listened to that episode and she's absolutely right that's not how things normally work Mm -hmm. she's Um, awesome just just i love you alex i loved that episode thank you Um, (laughs) i think what made it different was the fact that i was so intense and raising yeah him. in the bottle feeding the rearing yeah. yourself that would yeah mm-hmm. sorry i'm not not trying to discount anything you're saying just want to throw it out there if anyone's listening for the first time <laughs> i don't um, recommend it and i really strongly believe that that is not a good choice for almost everybody mm-hmm. how long do servals usually live um normally like 15 years but so he did he some, pass early he did He had Mm -hmm. some major health issues and had surgery when he was about eight months old that there were some complications from and like he was never, never super well. Um, Mm -hmm. And then at about six years old, he had some, he had some intestinal surgery when he was young. And then when he Mm -hmm. was about six years old, he had inflammation and swelling in the scar tissue from his first surgery. Mm -hmm. And we brought him in to have surgery again, and he did not make it through the surgery. I'm so sorry. They are extremely sensitive to sedatives and like the anesthesia during Mm -hmm. surgery. And he just couldn't make it. Yeah, it was it's I mean, obviously, this is not to the same level at all. But I do like emergency runs for a, a local rescue here that if they need like an animal brought to a shelter or brought to a vet office, no one else can. They usually call me. And there was a kitten this weekend that had been attacked by a dog and it didn't wake up from the anesthesia and they had to Narcan it and it finally came too. But I was like, holy shit, (laughs) like that is, I mean, it's not really something I would consider being like such a major issue, but 
it makes sense that it's an issue in domestic cats. So I can imagine in big cats, it's even harder to, to manage. Yeah, it is. And it's mm-hmm. known in like the zoo community that they don't take those drugs very well. So did you have um, a fairly knowledgeable exotic vet on hand? Um, I did. Unfortunately, at that surgery, it was somebody that had seen him before, mm-hmm. but it was an emergency situation. And so it wasn't his regular vet. And I know that they did all the right things. It was just very poor timing in an emergency situation. And it just worked out that way. Right. Mm, I'm sorry, but I mean, what an incredible experience to be able to have, <laughs> you know, at the time you did have with them. Yeah, he was amazing. And I don't regret it. I, I don't know that I would put myself through that again. Mm-hmm. And not, not that he was difficult. Like I've had dogs that were like harder pets to keep, honestly, but like the emotional cost of that was, was very high. And I don't yeah. think that I would do that again. Going back, your partner meets you when you're first bottle feeding the serval. So you guys are in a pretty steady relationship, you decide to get back into reptiles. Was he pretty accepting of that or open to it? Mm-hmm. And was there ever like a conversation like, hey, in four years, I'm going to have a hundred or was it just like, hey, I just want to get a gecko. Um, <laughs> it started out as like a couple and then it was like nervous until I hit like 30 and then he just stopped asking. Yeah. After 30, it doesn't really matter that much. But like, he's never complained. And I took over like the whole living room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And also we have like an outbuilding because we have an acre and I have like goats and chickens and ducks and, and a huge garden. Um, With all your tomatoes. Yeah. How many species of tomatoes? 44 varieties of tomatoes this year. I have 120 tomato plants. Do they all have different flavors or is it just different colors? Different flavors. Wildly different flavors. Wow. Wow. Do you can any of them? I do. I'll trade you cicadas. Okay. For some, for some canned tomatoes. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Okay. So you've got the outbuilding and you've, was he, what, how does he interact with the animals now? Does he help? Like if you're out of town, does he assist while you're cleaning or is it really you? Um, it's mostly me. If I'm out of town, he will do feeding and maintenance stuff. Um, not the snakes. Uh, he's kind of sensitive about dead rodents. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but again, like I've never gone long enough that like he would need to. And I've, Mike and Lindsay would be happy to if right. I needed them. Um, he's really cute with them. He knows most of them by name and sometimes like sings little songs to them. <laughs> Do you but name all your animals? I name all of the animals that I am keeping. I do not name babies that I don't intend to keep because if you name it, yeah. (laughs) Um, when you got back into them four or five years ago, did you have a focus in mind or did you kind of do the whole, like across the board, getting different things and then dial in your focus? Um, a little bit of both ways. Mm -hmm. I, was like, you know, I know that I've managed collections with a lot of species before and I don't really want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I wrote down my list of favorite species Mm -hmm. and I gave myself a budget and I went to- That's the hard part. A reptile show in California. 
And I was like, all right, like, let's see what is available that is captive born and bred that is on my list of favorites. Because mm-hmm. I didn't want to make an impulse purchase and be like, this is a species that I've never cared for before. I have no right. idea. So like I did the research and like went out with an expectation and I just made sure that I stayed within my expectation and on my list of favorites. <laughs> and over the years, I've expanded. Mm-hmm. So did you... Were you keeping up with the community enough to know like what was available or like the species that were hot at that time? I was keeping up enough to know what was available, but not really to know like what was popular. Mm -hmm. I've never super cared about what was popular. I've always just stuck with my favorites. Mm -hmm. So so, like on my list of favorites were a lot of Europlatus, but every Europlatus at that show was obviously wild caught. And so I was like, I, I don't want to start this way. Right. And I didn't get back into them until somebody that I knew and trusted had some captive born ones. Mm -hmm. So when did you get into Chihuahuas specifically? Because it seems like that is the majority of your collection currently. Actually, Lichianus is the majority of my collection. Okay, Lichianus. But it was at that same show. That was on my my top like seven species lists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at the same time I got back into both Lichianus and Chihua. Mm-hmm. And then Green Trees as well? Green Trees was just a couple of years ago, two and a half or three years ago, I think. Right. Um, and that was pretty wild because I hadn't really kept up I used to peruse the signal, her yes. website, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like I would daydream about having $600 to drop on one of those. Oh my God. If you beautiful had a signal her animal at $600, I know. <laughs> that makes my heart hurt. <laughs> Going through college life. though, I was like, oh my God. And it was like the point of college where I didn't have any reptiles. And I was like, Oh my gosh, if only I could justify this grand expense. If you had, if you had, Oh my God. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. I know. Cause Um, that's that. That was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Sorry. We're just like jumping all over the place. We'll get back to what I was talking about, but you're my first green tree interview, which is exciting for me. And most people you don't hear about like getting into green trees in the nineties, which seems like that's when you kind of started and then you kind of fell back out of it. What was, what was that like then keeping green trees? I'm assuming it was import Biox. It was an import Biox. It was only Mm -hmm. one. I kept one as a pet and I struggled with that snake so much. It had prolapses. It had RIs. I was keeping it all wrong. Of course, I didn't know any better at the time. Right. Um, I was keeping it at a 20 gallon fish tank with a red heat bulb and a giant bowl of water and an mm-hmm. automatic fogger. And like, yeah. I dumped a lot of money on its setup at the time thinking that it was like the appropriate setup. And it wasn't like, I didn't go bioactive. I kept it minimal, but with a giant water bowl and the fogger and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd really struggled with that animal so much. Um mm-hmm. Can I ask how much, do you remember how much you paid? $300. Okay. So pretty on par with a cat, with a import Biak nowadays. Yeah. But 12 years ago, it was a yellow, yellow baby. And did you um, have it from a Neo? Yeah. And like, I struggled getting it to eat. And then when it would eat, it would prolapse. And like, it was 
that animal was just such a struggle. And so for a long time, I thought like this species is just insanely difficult and my skill level is not adequate. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't get back into snakes right away. Once I started building my collection, I went for a few years and then I was like, you know, like I really would like to try this again. Mm -hmm. And I knew from my previous species that like our husbandry practices have improved so much over the years. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm sure there's more and better information. And now like vets are more accessible. Like back then a vet that would see reptiles, it was like, if a shot of Batril doesn't fix it, it's dead. So I started researching again and I found out that like the information that's available now is so much better, so Mm -hmm. much more up to date. We have like real data from how they are in the wild. Mm -hmm. Like back when I had it, it was like, you need a basking spot of 98 degrees. Oh my God. (laughs) No wonder I struggled. Now my snake room is 80 degrees and they've got heat panels with a hot spot of 84. Yeah. Like I don't keep them in any way close to the same way that I kept that one back then. Yeah. So did you, when you got back into green trees, um, where did you get your first green tree or how did you go about that? Were you like active in the forums or on Facebook groups at all? I was, I perused the forums, which are mostly old information because people don't really post there, but Mm -hmm. I did go through and read everything. And the current groups on Facebook, I went through and read everything and I got my first green tree from somebody that I knew that keeps Chihua and Lichianus. And like, mm-hmm. I trusted them and their collection was small. And through the research that I've done, um, when, I, when I was wanting to get back into them, but wasn't ready to make that leap yet, I learned about Nidovirus. And so I knew mm-hmm. that was a thing. And so I was like, all right, like I have a lot more information. Like my toolbox is much fuller than it used to be. So I'm going to mm-hmm. try this. And I got this animal limoncella from this person that kept the same geckos as I did and they shipped it to me and she immediately came down with an RI an absolutely gorgeous animal is from one of Bart Shiraz um, mustard uh, they all produce mustard but it was like Oshi and something Mm -hmm. Um, almost solid yellow animal like mm-hmm. freaking beautiful. I ran in the NIDO test and she came back positive for NIDO virus. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, like I had a pretty good relationship with this person. I let them know right away. They were super apologetic. I didn't imagine that they could have it because their collection had been closed for like seven years, had been breeding their animals, hadn't been mm-hmm. having problems. And like, I trusted them enough to trust that what they said was true. Yeah. And it's also... Like, I mean, we'll talk about this more, but there are certain things that can bring up nidovirus, even on animals that have been clean, you know, yeah. and it's not necessarily like an in- indication of how the keeper is. It just it happens. It, I think it's usually like stress and yeah. like she was shipped and immediately came down with it. Yeah. But he immediately was like, he refunded me. Um, I was treating the RI mm-hmm. and I hadn't decided what else to do. Um, but I, I really, I really thought that I had all of this new information 
And I had the opportunity because I have an outbuilding and I have the ability to quarantine so stringently. I was like, I don't think that I want to start a collection with NIDA virus. Like I have the ability to be extremely cautious, to quarantine very strictly, to expose them to absolutely no other animals, to Mm -hmm. test several times, to do the things. And I would like to do this right. And so I kept her for about six weeks so that I could treat the RI and make sure that she was stable and strong Mm -hmm. and sent, sent her back. Um, And even through the years we've kept in touch and I've, I've stayed up to date with, with how she's doing, but I, I sent her back because I was just getting back into it. And I was like, I don't think that this is the right way to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sent her back and then I was like, okay, I thought that I wouldn't need to be as diligent if I knew and trusted who I was getting from and was mm-hmm. careful about quarantine. But I decided at that point that what I was going to do was make a plan for what I wanted to get, which in my Mm -hmm. mind was nine snakes. (laughs) (laughs) Why nine? And I just thought it was a good group. I, uh, whenever I start a new species project, I make a dream vision board of like all my favorite animals of that species. Mm -hmm. And then I really try to very carefully choose animals that are either related to or look like animals on my dream vision board. Okay. That's awesome. I struggled to pick my nine favorite animals Mm -hmm. and I made this vision board for green tree pythons. And I was like, all right, like I'm only going to get things that either look like one of these or are related to one of these exact snakes. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And I decided that I was going to do that the best way that I could and source from as few people as possible to minimize risk. And I was going to test very stringently as I brought animals in. Mm-hmm. So I wound up bringing in a group of three animals. Mm-hmm. And because I have the separate building, I was able to quarantine them for nine months. And I tested three times in that nine months and they all came back negative. And then I got uh, two more animals from somebody else and three mm-hmm. other animals from somebody else. And I did the same procedures. Like I, not all of the animals came at the same time, but like I kept animals from the different sources mm-hmm. separate mm-hmm. Um, so that I could just be like, all right, like I'm going to do everything possible to minimize risk here. Right. And tested everybody many times. <laughs> Then after I felt pretty confident, I had eight snakes from three sources and they were all in my reptile room. And a few months ago, I just finally got like adult, nice caging for everybody instead of being in rack systems. It took you long enough. I know. (laughs) Eight months later. Um, So I moved everybody out. I was like, everybody's had a bunch of nidovirus tests. Everybody's been like rock solid feeders, no RIs, no signs of anything hinky. Mm -hmm. Um, and I recently moved them all out. And then I found out that one of the collections that I got some of my snakes from was positive for nidovirus. So at that point I decided that I was going to call it good. I had eight snakes. It looks like two are males and six are females. And I was like, nobody could even wish for that. Yeah. 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 Wow. (laughs) 
yeah, I was like, that's super lucky. Like I was really hoping to get a blue line male, but I was like, I don't need it. Mm -hmm. That was the last thing on my dream board was like a blue animal. And I was like, I definitely needed another male. So I was like, I have to go for a blue male. And then I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to run an out of ours panel on everyone Mm -hmm. so that it's all on one sheet of everybody together one last time and then close it and call it good. And one of my animals came up positive. Mm -hmm. So before you get into that more, um, we, when we were speaking like one-on-one while it's just going on, how did you induce stress to then test the animals? Can you talk about that a bit? Um, so I actually didn't, you didn't, so, this time? no. So I'd always thought that stress, I mean, everybody says that stress is what induces the infection or the flare up of the virus. And so I've always done the test, the first test, uh, like one to two days after they're shipped to me, mm-hmm. because that's the, the best time. Like I thought, mm-hmm. And then I do a couple more. And then last summer, I actually, we had a tree fall on our transformer. And so we were without power and running on a generator and my snakes all went through like some pretty wild temperature swings then. So Mm -hmm. I ran a couple random animals at that point because I was like, well, if anything's going to pop up, like it should Mm -hmm. be that. And I got nothing. Um, And I was the night that I heard that one of the collections I got from had night virus. I, I, I lost my mind a little bit, honestly. I was like, what do I do to find out? Like, I want to know now or never. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, um, my room is temperature controlled to 80. So I dropped mm-hmm. the temperature to 75 mm-hmm. and I unplugged their heat panels that night and I posted about it in the night of virus forum. And I was like, Hey, this is what I've done. Like, is there anything else that I can do? Because I, I just want to catch this now. Like, I want to know if I either do or don't have it. And mm-hmm. Patrick Holmes messaged me and was like, Hey, I don't think it's a good idea to stress your snakes out. You're going to do more harm than good. Just mm-hmm. run the test without it without, without intentionally stressing your animals. So it was like three hours that their temperatures were Mm -hmm. ideal. It was like, not even a whole night, but I went, I went and turned everything back on and ran the panel a few days later. And one of my animals came back positive. And was this an animal you were concerned about? It wasn't, it was an animal that I'd had the longest. It had had four negative tests (laughs) has never had issues. Like there was a, a male from that collection that I was worried about mm-hmm. because that male was cruising and went off food and regurgitated last summer. Mm-hmm. And I ran a test when it regurgitated. Cause I was like, I just might as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, if anybody's going to be positive, it's going to be him, but it wasn't, it was an animal that I've never had problems with. And even still, the day I got the results back, I moved her back into the house instead of in the snake room. Mm-hmm. Nothing. She doesn't know anything's wrong. And at this point, I'm like, I I don't know if I want to keep testing things mm-hmm. because I could. Maybe she's the only one that's positive. Mm-hmm. But also, she had four negative tests, and I swab aggressively. <laughs> Did she, okay. So then just a couple of questions. So I know we've talked about this, but I want, if you're willing to talk about it, I kind of want to just have this discussion again, two things on that. When you first test, do you go through multiple sources? Uh, for the test results? Mm-hmm. 
Yes. My first test is always through fish head. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like they're, I like that they send you a little vial of the preservative. I don't know if that really makes a difference, but <laughs> I feel like in my mind, like I'm like preservative, that's gotta be good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my first test is always through fish head, but I have also done some through the university of Florida. My vet likes university of Florida and like, mm-hmm. I've got a good vet that I work with through all of this too. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've sent tests to both places. Um, this last batch was the first time that I used RAL labs and they are the one that picked it up. Mm-hmm. So then I, as of, I was going to ask is, did you do a second test from her? I did do a second test from her and I sent it to Fishhead, and they came up positive as well. Okay. So she had four negative and now two positive yes. from two different labs. From two different labs. And the four negatives were from two different labs as well. Right. Because my, my thir- first thought and something we discussed was like potential cross-contamination. Like, was it possible that the first positive was a fluke? And I obviously was really, at this point. <laughs> I was really hoping that it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really felt like if there was any situation where a false positive were likely, that it would be that. Because I tested all my snakes so much. Mm-hmm. But I sent another test to fish head and I didn't test any other snakes at that point. Cause I didn't want any, any chance of having a tube swapped or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sent her loan sample to fish head and it came back positive. And I don't super know where to go from there. Like, do I keep testing even though three tests or four tests might not pick it up? Mm -hmm. Since nobody's had issues, do I just maintain my collection as I have been over the past couple of years? I don't know. I'm having, I go back and forth every day. So right now she's separate and I just, am going to hold out that way until I make up my mind. The only thing that I can think of is that all of her tests were before I tried to pair her. I tried to pair her in January to my mail that came from the collection that wound up being positive. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, maybe... He was tested three times and they were all negative, but maybe he was positive and just subclinical enough to where a test never picked it up, but maybe it was enough that she caught it and she got it from him. I, I really don't know, Mm -hmm. but even this last one where she came up positive, he tested negative still. It's one of the things that I just don't really have anything to say. As a person who did everything that I could think of and tested so diligently and quarantined so diligently, mm-hmm. it's blowing my mind. And I'm kind of an anxious person to begin with. And so mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't know. But mm-hmm. none of my snakes are acting like anything is wrong. They're all doing their things. And like when I first got that result, I was like, every time I've looked at them, like I have got one Bayek that's always been hissy. And I change her water and she hisses. And I'm like, is that a Nido hiss? She's not even the one that tested positive. And I'm like, is that a Nido hiss? I don't know. Yeah. What's a Nido hiss? <laughs> yeah. And like, I've been really hands off with them since because I've just been paranoid. And then of course, because I've been hands off with them, I have not been like as careful to watch for like the cloudy eye when they're going to shed, which can sometimes be difficult to see. And my tanks aren't lit. They have room light, but they're not like intense light. And I missed a, a shed cycle and one of them had a bad shed. And I'm like, is this a Nido shed? Yeah. Like, <laughs> but 
but like they're all eating no respiratory infections and for a while it was like every other day i was pulling a snake out and like listening to their breathing like holding my ear up to their face and like breathe damn it mm-hmm. <laughs> and i just there's nothing symptomatic in mm-hmm. any of them even though i am so paranoid about it right now that like my brain is making up things to turn into symptoms yeah yeah i I get it. And I obviously it was, it was different, but when my one animal was very sick and eventually died, like I looked at every other animal and I was like, Oh, you're also dying. Aren't you? Uh, you have to be. Cause if one you died, of course. To. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I lost a female gecko to egg, egg issues, um, last year. Mm-hmm. And like, I, she wouldn't stop laying eggs and it's, very hard on them they only lay two at a time but for chihuahua like they Mm -hmm. it was a chihuahua and so she laid three clutches and on the third clutch she looked rough and i separated Mm -hmm. her and i put her in a bin um with a reduced light cycle and extra heat trying to get her to stop her cycle because they can lay like chickens like even if they're not paired like they Mm -hmm. keep cycling and laying eggs Mm-hmm. I did everything I could get her to stop. I was giving her calcium injections like three times a day. She laid three more clutches. The wow. last two clutches, it was like three and a half weeks apart. I'd been bringing her to the vet for a couple months at this point. Mm-hmm. And at the last clutch, I drove down to my vet and like, I'm crying. My animal looks like shit. And he's just like, you know, we've been trying for a couple months and like mm-hmm. injections a couple times a day for a couple months and I don't think that she can recover from this and we had Mm -hmm. to put her down and it was hard like my vet's a good vet and he knows he's got an amazing collection and I adore him as a vet um and so he was really kind to me when I was going through that because it's hard you get emotionally attached and you do everything you can and it's Mm -hmm. still not enough And then like a week later, I went back to him after we put her down and it was like, is this a collection issue? Like, am I just screwing all of my animals? Am I doing something so horrifically wrong? Yeah. Everything is going to die. So he went through and ran a bunch of tests and was like, I don't think that it is, but like, we'll do all the things just in case. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, she just, something was wrong with her cycling and she wouldn't stop laying. And So she, like that season, she laid more than her own body weight in eggs. Like she just wouldn't stop no matter what I did to try and get her to stop. It freaks your brain out when you're like everything. That's so hard with reptiles is that they can't tell you when something is wrong. Like a cat or a dog or or even your goats and stuff, you can tell their signs. But like I have realized in working at the shelter and then my own collection, it's like, they will be fine until they're dying. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of something in between, which is why it's like important to be so proactive. <laughs> Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit, if you don't mind, um, personally, you know, having all this going on with your collection and like, you know, losing an animal and then having the nidovirus pop up, how are you maintaining your positive positivity and like your passion for the animals? Has that been something you're struggling with at all? I struggled for a couple of weeks and then I went back to therapy because I know that I have, I have like an anxiety. I've always struggled with anxiety and Mm -hmm. I know that if I let it go on, it gets to my sleep cycle. And then Mm -hmm. if I don't take care of it, then I get pretty depressed. And sometimes that can last for a, a good while. 
Yeah. And so I was like, you know, like, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this to myself and I don't want to do this to my animals. And so I got back into therapy right away and I, I have come to terms with it. I'm not super stoked on it. And I'm still a little bit indecisive about where I should go. Mm -hmm. Like if I should test or if I should just keep everybody as I have been for the last Mm -hmm. couple of years. Um, but I, you know, my snakes don't know anything's wrong. So why, Mm -hmm. why should I work myself up over it? Like that's only going to hurt them and me. Mm-hmm. Do you have any concerns about having your snakes that like potentially had nidovirus or have it in the same room as your geckos? Is there any worry there? I called and talked to Pia about that and I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that is that tested positive is not in a room with any other reptiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's completely isolated in a room that's on the opposite end of the house from my other reptiles. So um, I don't think that it's a risk, but at this point I'm still keeping her isolated in such a way that it it wouldn't be an issue regardless. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So getting on a little bit more positive topic, because I don't want to, I think this is like such an important thing to discuss, but I also want to like highlight some of the incredible things you're doing, not just like the hardships you're having in your collection. So can you tell me a little bit more about your geckos? Like, I don't know anything about Chihua. The only uh, things I know are actually from your interview on the Herpeticulture Network with, um, is it Michael from Uh Chihua Chamber? Yep. Yes. Which was an awesome episode. Everyone should go listen. But what was it that drew you to Chihuahuas and also Lichianus geckos and, and what keeps you working with them and, and what are you working with within these two collections? So I will admit that Lichianus, their size, they are mm-hmm. an impressive, glorious beast of a gecko. Yeah. Chihuahuas, I loved their patterns and they're mm-hmm. masters of camouflage. And, oh, you know, so I love, cool. I love the camouflage. You just don't um, want to be able to see your animals. I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My partner's always like, get a chameleon. And I'm like, no, why would I want that? The green trees are good enough. <laughs> right. Um, the Chihuahuas, their personality is just so charming. It's really hard to get over. Mm-hmm. They are, they're much more intelligent than we give them credit for. And mm-hmm. many of mine will come to the glass and like put their paws up on the glass. <laughs> like, and that's how they let me know, like, Hey, I want some outside time and I'll open it out and they'll walk out onto me and like, hang out on my shoulder while I go about my business. Mm-hmm. And I do sometimes like, just let them hang out on my shoulder and like go out into the yard or. Mm-hmm. I, not for too long. Cause like it's hot here and I don't want to harm them, Yeah, but they, little they UVB. Really, yeah. And I keep UV lights on all of them. So I don't think it's really that either. Mm-hmm. I think they're just smarter, like more personable reptiles and not mm-hmm. all of mine are like that, but enough of them are like that. that I'm like, there's something there. Mm-hmm. There's something there that we're really underestimating. And I feel that about a lot of reptiles and it's mm-hmm. not, uh, it's not anthropomorphizing because I don't think like, oh, they love me. They want to be my friends. Like, I don't have that misconception about them. But mm-hmm. I think that we really, we have this set of standards that we use for like calculating intelligence. 
mm-hmm. and it's so human centric. Yeah. That I mean, we already know this. Like over the past couple decades, we've learned that like birds can be really freaking smart, and like monkeys use tools. Mm-hmm. Like we have this set of standards that we use to evaluate intelligence in other species, and it's yeah. really not appropriate. And I think that we really underestimate a lot of animals because Mm -hmm. there's something there for sure. And like some of them, I'd swear they know their names, not all (laughs) of them, but there's a couple that like, maybe it's just my voice. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can't say for sure, but they pair bond. And like, I've had females that like really seem to like a male. And I'm like, that's not an ideal mate for you. So I'm going to try you with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then, like, they will reject, like, three or four or five males. Yeah. And finally, I give up. And I'm like, I guess, like, you liked this one, so I'll put you back, even though I don't think you're a great pair together. And, like, immediately, they go back to sleeping in the same log and hiding in the same hides. And they are mm-hmm. always, t- they wrap their tails around each other. Mm-hmm. Like, they will eat together. They sleep together. I'm like, there's something there. Like, I don't want to call it love because that's anthropomorphizing like human feelings onto mm-hmm. animals that we can't we can't calculate that in animals but there's right. definitely something so with pairing them and such how long do you keep the pairs together and then are they normally like uh housed separately they are not normally housed separately okay and this is something i when i first started breeding i would mix and match pairs depending on what i thought I liked the most and I've really discovered that when a pair is compatible and they like each other and better off leaving them be. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'll separate them and you'll put them back together and they'll try to kill each other. Mm. So now, unless a female looks like she needs rest, which sometimes happens, Mm -hmm. I leave them together. If a female needs a break, I will put her out in the snake room because it's warm and lower light. Um, And so like they can keep their metabolism up and like pack on, on some weight without Mm -hmm. having the light cycle. That's going to keep them laying. Mm -hmm. Um, But if, if they are both in good condition and they're not fighting, I leave them be and I cool all of them in their same enclosures over winter. And that's their break. And you, you spoke and I'm just going to like plug this again. I really think everyone should listen to your episode on Herpeticulture Network, not just because I'm friends with Justin and Phil, but because it was a really phenomenal episode. Um, but you spoke a lot in that about your feeding and what you do with that. So I won't get too, too deep into that, but give me a, a quick breakdown of what you're feeding the geckos and how are you prepping the females for breeding or helping them recover after, after laying? So... I feed my lichianas and my chihua the same way, except that chihua also get crickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feed them, I use the Pangea brands and I rotate through like all of their formulas, but I also do homemade smoothies and I do, I, so uh, Michael has a recipe that he devised years ago based on mango baby food and supplements mm-hmm. for his chihuahuas. I use that formula as a base And I do use mango a lot, but I also rotate out a lot of other fresh produce. And I have a huge garden and I have a lot of fruit trees. So I go very seasonally. Like right now, mulberries are in season. They're eating a lot of mulberries. Like Mm -hmm. later it'll be 
apricots and then peaches and then plums and then it's cantaloupe season and I really you're making me want to move you need another (laughs) roommate like oh my god (laughs) that sounds so fun so I really I I think that we're missing something in commercial diets and I don't know what it is Mm -hmm. but I think that the best way to get around that is to feed them as wide a variety of fresh produce as possible. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I do. Do you notice that um, they'll have preferences or do you think because of the variety you give them, it doesn't allow them to like have a preference? Some older animals that I got from other people definitely have preferences, mm-hmm. but I've noticed that animals that I raise, I start them out from hatchlings with a mm-hmm. very varied diet. And none of the animals that I raise myself have been fussy eaters. Like mm-hmm. they're all very willing to just try whatever. Yeah. So how long do you keep um, hatchlings before you allow them to be sold? Minimum six weeks. Do they have um, any sort of color change that occurs? So they're all born hatched pretty much brown and boring. <laughs> um, so there are some things that you can use to like key in to which ones because they do all go through an ontogenetic color change and they change drastically from hatchling to adult. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all born mostly like brown and gray and some black and white, like right. very, very boring. Um, so like animals from my favorite pairs that I know tend to, to produce babies with really amazing color. A lot of those, I will keep every single baby until they mm-hmm. go through the color change Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things like I have one pairing Aria and Peridot that like, I know from the hatchlings, which ones are going to look more yate, which is like dark base with a really reduced pattern and white spots. I know which ones are going to turn out that way versus which ones are going to turn out more high color. Mm-hmm. And it is like 25% or so are going to be really nice high color. And the rest are going to be that dark dark yate looking animals Mm -hmm. and so I I can be a little more selective with pairs that I've had together a long time and that I've I've raised a lot of animals from them Mm -hmm. but I do hold back a lot until they're a year or so and I know Mm -hmm. and when can you sex them depends on how quickly they grow and also that's a little bit of a trick (laughs) (laughs) um so I don't want to call anything a for sure female until for Chihua until it's like 30 to 40 grams and for Lichianos 50 grams plus. Mm-hmm. Some males you can call early, but I do incubate warmer because mm-hmm. Lichianos are, are uh, sex linked temperature and the the population that you'll find at shows and stuff skews heavily female. Mm-hmm. And so I do incubate warmer so that I get more males because I bought a bunch of babies. <laughs> and for the first couple of years I was hatching, I hatched cooler. And so like, I've got all these female holdbacks and like all these females that are raised up and like, I need nice males. Mm-hmm. So I do incubate warmer so that I get more male Lichianus hatchlings. But the tricky thing with that is that when you incubate them warmer, even when they hatch female they will have what's called pseudopores and it makes them much harder to sex until Mm -hmm. they reach a size where the true pores become waxy, Okay. which for Lichianus is about 50 grams. Right. So have you tried the black light trick on any of them? 
I haven't. I just heard about that. Yeah. And I meant to, but I haven't had any hatchlings this season yet. Okay. So, you know, so, all the sexes right now. Yeah. I haven't right. had a chance to. Uh, yeah. I thought I that was so interesting when that came yeah. out. I can't, I'm so sorry. I can't remember the name of the woman who figured it out, but so cool. <laughs> I am super excited to try that because it could be a game changer. Mm-hmm. Like right now, I just hold back all of my animals from my favorite pairings until I can sex them. And I'm like, okay, what do I need to keep? Because right. I am, I'm a breeder. Like I want to keep my best animals and I right. want to keep a nice sex ratio so mm-hmm. that like I have a future to my plans yeah. instead of just being like, well, I'll sell everything. I keep mm-hmm. a lot. When they can a- figure out how to do that with green trees. Oh, my God, that'll be excellent. <laughs> Even the DNA sexing now is coming along. Like, yeah, I know that's... you need sheds from a couple generations, but like, yeah. that's a game changer. Yeah, that's very cool. So when you're talking about the Delicianus and the Chihua, and you talk about like your best pairings, to someone who doesn't know the species very well, are you focused on like localities or is it more morph based? Where are those uh, geckos sitting right there? That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so there aren't really morphs in either species. Some mm-hmm. people will say that they're in Lichianus, there's like a dark morph or hypomelanistic, but like really none of that is super predictable. It's not, it's not like albino or like mm-hmm. ball pythons where there's like genes that are heritable. None of the species that I keep have like true morphs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't focus on localities, although all of my Chihua are pine isles. I mm-hmm. have had mainlands in the past and they can be just as beautiful. They get a bad rap in the hobby. Why is that? Back in the nineties, they didn't husbandry issues. Like they didn't have the information that we have now. And mm-hmm. so they didn't feed them appropriately. They didn't supplement the, them appropriately. And so there were some like physiological issues, like they would crop up with major underbites or overbites or buggy eyes or shorter bodies. But it was really, at least to the best of our current knowledge, it was really husbandry and inbreeding problems rather than locality problems. Mm -hmm. But that mentality has not, has not left the hobby yet. Yeah. Are Um, Chihuahuas still brought in as wild caught animals? No. No, no, New Caledonia doesn't export. Right, they're any, New Caledonian. Duh. Yeah, New Duh, Caledonia yeah. doesn't export any animals, and they don't even allow research permits for you to like go study them in situ. So, is that for fear of people taking them? Yeah. Are they as okay? This is I really sound like an idiot. This is, but I just want to know more. Are New Caledonian geckos as popular in other parts of the world as they are in the U.S. right now? Yes, actually, a big portion of what the U.S. produces is exported to mostly Hong Kong. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Like a huge portion. I I send a couple dozen animals over every year. What is the process of that like? I don't do the export myself. Yeah. Buyers. And oftentimes it's buyers that come and like they'll go through if I've just uploaded an album with availability, they'll go through like all 20 or 30 animals and they will send me a list 
and they'll be like, what will you give me for all of these? Mm -hmm. This is my exporters information. And it's always a US based exporter. They do the CITES paperwork because there is paperwork that is involved with shipping animals internationally. Right. So I usually just send them to an exporter that's in either like Miami or LA or New York. Mm -hmm. And then they handle the international shipment. It's really wild. Yeah. That's like, what, what was that like the first time someone asked you for that? Cause I can imagine being like, what? <laughs> I was so suspicious. I reached out to a bunch of my friends who are breeders and I knew that like a lot of the animals that the U S produces are exported. I knew mm-hmm. that, but it hadn't happened to me yet. Mm-hmm. And when it first happened, I like, I took some screenshots and I sent it to a couple of close breeder friends and I was like, Hey, like, is this a scam? Like what's yeah, am I getting here? screwed? Yeah. That's exactly is this what like one of those people that's like, I'll mail you a check. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, so paranoid about it, but it went fine. And for the most part it is. And like a lot of those people, you never like see or hear from the animals again, but like a good number of them are either reselling. And so I send a business card with like the lineage information and the hash information and, mm-hmm. and my information. And I tape it to every, every deli cup of an animal that I ship out. Mm-hmm. And so I've had people overseas that are the final buyers of these animals and they get back a hold of me and they're like, Hey, do you have pictures of like the parents? Cause I've got this business card. And I'm like, yes, yes. yes That's I so do. cool. That's so cool. <laughs> That's just awesome. Oh my goodness. So we are actually reaching the end of our time because I have a house to pack, which is going to be a nightmare, but I just have a couple other things I'd I'd like for you to talk about if you can. Um, First off is I know you keep a small collection, but is there any species that you hope to add to your collections in the future? Realistically, probably not. Mm Mm-hmm. I've got some dream species that I would love to keep. Um, One of them is green tree monitors, which I absolutely love. And I had Mm -hmm. a pair of them for a couple of years. Uh, I did, I, I did rehome them last year. And I think fundamentally my personality is not suited to making them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is because I tried so hard but I could never gain trust with them and watching them blossom in somebody else's care. I think that they're, they're an intelligent species and mm-hmm. they need somebody who's like on the same like jive as they are. Yeah. <laughs> and they've really become so much more outgoing with, with this other person. Yeah. So I'm like, I would love to have them, but like, I, I don't think that I will because mm-hmm. I think that reptiles deserve homes with, the people that are personality wise suited to keeping them comfortable and safe and happy. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of these animals are just smarter than we give them credit for. And people have different personalities and like sometimes things just aren't a good fit. So, you know, that's your dream species. What is advice that you would give to another young woman or girl looking to get into the hobby? I would say, First, do a lot of research, like really nerd out, read a lot of books, watch a lot of shows. And then just like what 
I did when I decided to get back in, instead of going to the, the local stores and seeing what's available, make a dream list. Make a dream list of what you most love and stick to that. Because when you're not super passionate about what you're keeping, mm-hmm. the care that you provide for them is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I think they deserve better than that. So I think even if even if what you want is green trees, like so many people are like, don't get a green tree to start, like get a ball python because they're easier. I'm like, but if you don't love ball pythons, like you're not going to take care of it in the way that it deserves and it's going to suffer. But Mm -hmm. if you really love green tree pythons and you take the time to do your research and set it up appropriately and have the right husbandry and go to a breeder, an actual person that produced the animal, like those are lifelong friendships that you can build there. And you'll Mm -hmm. always have them to turn to when things go wrong. And they will like The first Neo I brought home, like it's third or fourth meal, it ate the mouse backwards. And I literally at like 11 o'clock at night messaged the breeder and I was like, is it going to die? Should I try and pull it back (laughs) out? Like, yeah. And even when things aren't really going wrong, like you're going to freak yourself out when Mm -hmm. things don't go as they should. Having a real person to turn to makes a world of difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? I am on Facebook, Arboreals Anonymous, and Instagram, Arboreals Anonymous, and arboreals at gmail.com. <laughs> Which I just can't believe you got that name. That's like that's a solid like business name to have. And my partner came up with it because he's he's so smart. <laughs> he is. We were actually sitting in the hotel after Tinley one day and I was like, I got to come up with a name. And I was like, I don't really want my face on it. Cause like sometimes people get weird. Yeah, really? <laughs> sometimes people get weird. And so it's like, I don't, I don't super want my name attached to this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have like a separate business thing. And so we were just sitting at Tinley Park one day after the show coming up with names and I love alliteration. So we were Mm -hmm. just like playing word games, passing things back and forth. And he came up with it. And I was like, I love it. Like all my favorite species are arboreal. Yeah. And even if I don't have them all, if I expanded at some point, like everything that I really love is arboreal. So it fits. Mm -hmm. It can, it can take care of me from now till the end of time. Yeah. That's like, I should have stuck with my, I don't even remember. The very first name I wanted, and I was like still like a baby keeper. I mean, I, I am still a baby keeper, but I really wanted um Riveter Reptiles because my logo is Rosie the Riveter, you know. And I but someone else had that and now I'm I'm too far in with my last name and it's really freaking boring, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but okay, listen to this. You're gonna find this hilarious. You know who Rosie the Riveter is, right? Of course. One of my coworkers saw my logo. Is like, is that the Arm and Hammer guy? What? <laughs> what? How did like, you make that up? Oh I was like, Matt, you got to get outside more. You got to, you got to like. <laughs> I love the modern Medusa logo. Oh, I've got to say, I thank have this you. romantic relationship in my mind with Medusa and the idea of Medusa. I love so. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, perfect. 
my logo is made by Sabrina Gray Design on Instagram. She is incredible and just like very, very talented. So if anyone needs a logo, hit her up. I'm going to go follow her right now. Thank you. Yeah, you should. She actually does a ton of um, sports and like, I'm the one who got her into reptile things. And then all these people started going to her and I was like, hell yeah, Sabrina. (laughs) Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, It was such a pleasure to get to speak with you. We text all the time, but it's like great to see your face. (laughs) This was so nice. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And once again, thank you for your like incredible support. You know, you've been very supportive of me from the beginning and I just, I'm very grateful for your friendship and and your mentorship and, and your guidance. So I hope that some other people can listen and hear how amazing you are. You do so much community building and we need that. So I really appreciate all the work that you put in to bringing people together and educating and getting it out there. Well, thank you. You know, couldn't do it without people actually joining the community. So thanks. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everyone, if you're listening, make sure you follow Erica on all the social medias, reach out if you have any need or questions about Chihuahua's green tree pythons, Lichianus, or those cork bark leaf tails. Um, feel free to follow me at DeFalco Reptiles on Facebook and Instagram, and then follow the podcast, Modern Medusa Podcast on Instagram. And if you feel so inclined, join the Patreon. I am very excited for things we got going on. We have some new merch available as patrons and lots of really fun stuff. Um, And as always, incredibly grateful for everyone who listens and takes time to, you know, get back to me and and talk to our guests about how much you enjoy the podcast. I always pass that info along. So thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening. 